Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and the immediate past co-chair of our firm's EEO and diversity practice group. I partner with our clients in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space with a focus on advising on, as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. As many of you who are tuning into this podcast likely know, at the end of its 2022-23 term this past June, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a pair of decisions the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, striking down race-conscious admission processes as unconstitutional. The court held that, however well-intentioned, admissions policies and practices must treat citizens as individuals, not simply as components of racial, religious, sexual, or national class. So bona fides aside, racial quotas are still unlawful discrimination, the high court held. And while this significant ruling was not a direct attack on the fate of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in this country's corporate space, it may provide a foreshadowing of what is to come in the post-Harvard UNC era, because Corporate America's concerns with this ruling can be better appreciated in context. With a growing stop woke movement that continues to sweep certain areas of this nation and a corresponding uptick in DEI focused litigation in the corporate sectors in the past two years, in addition to a growing tally of state and municipal bills targeting DEI funding in government education, and the military, the war on woke clearly continues. It is against this overall backdrop that this decision has resulted in causing many companies to pause or at least to question their ideological and financial investments in this space. However, just because this latest development in the DEI space has certainly highlighted the growing challenges to DEI-centric decision-making. This doesn't mean that business interests and commitments to DEI are now fated to DIE. And to have that conversation, I've invited my friend and colleague, Kim Carter, a shareholder in Littler's San Diego office. And by way of background, Law has actually been a second career for Kim, who was first a workers' compensation insurance adjuster after graduating from San Diego State University. After earning her JD from Thomas Jefferson School of Law, she then established a demanding practice with a special focus that includes wage and hour disputes, discrimination and harassment, collective bargaining, workplace investigations, and workplace training. And while Kim has confided in me that her other life involves painting and living on a small farm on a magical tropical island growing vegetables, until then, she is committed to exploring the current DEI challenges and opportunities with me today in this life. Kim. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. Cindy Ann, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. I'm so excited about our discussion today. Me too. So listen, Kim, for those of us in the profession, as you know, we calmly converse amongst ourselves that the Harvard UNC decision has changed nothing about the legality of appropriate DEI initiatives in the corporate space. The same legal guardrails and EEO laws around the issue of protected categories that existed before the decision still exist. It changes nothing about practices around DEI initiatives 
that were considered to be unlawful before this decision. So why then does the proverbial sky seem to be falling? (laughs) That's such a good question. I'll do my best to see if we can tackle that question because I think that's the overall theme for this discussion. But I will say that in order for us to really understand why the sky feels like it's falling, we need to understand how we got to this space first, right? First and foremost, I don't think it's a surprise if I say this, but following the summer of 2020, I think that the world and essentially schools and and various corporations have had this kind of knee-jerk reaction to what we saw that was happening in the media, what we saw that was being demonstrated across the world in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And it was almost as if it was like this aha moment that especially in the United States, there's just been this sense of exclusion of minorities and and in particular Black people from spaces like institutions of learning, from workspaces. And yet that's always kind of been, right? Since the establishment of our country. You know, we look at laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and we look at the need to protect individuals from being discriminated against in workplaces and institutions of learning on the basis of race. I mean, that's been ongoing since 1964 and even, you know, earlier in 1866 and and, and whatnot for civil rights. And yet, socially, when we've had these discussions, it's been almost gaslighted. We've almost been through a gaslighting experience of, oh, this isn't really race related. Oh, this isn't a problem until you see something so vitriol, so igniting as what we saw in May of 2020. As a result of that, now you have the need for pretty much everyone on the planet to make a statement and to show their support for equity diversity, and inclusion in spaces where they've largely been denied for such a large group of individuals. And that statement has required corporations and institutions to stand really affirmatively and say, we will not stand for this anymore. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is. Let's stand on those social justices. Let's say that we are going to make sure that we now are providing spaces for individuals to work, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, to have the opportunities for education and whatnot. And putting those plans into place, they have identified in particular race, you know, and other protected classes as those things that have been so largely denied for, you know, a grander scale. The reason that we're here today with this decision is because in 1964, it was decided you cannot make employment decisions based on protected classes such as race, religion, and gender, and and all of those sorts of things. And we have stood by that when it puts minority people in disenfranchised positions. But then in in this wake to just swing the pendulum and try to include some equity, we've ignored it, (laughs) at least in our decision making. Yes. To try to bring some equality back into these spaces. The intention is very well-meaning, absolutely well-meaning, but we've allowed a space for this knee-jerk reaction to try to right wrongs that we are absolutely seeing and experiencing and have experienced for decades. But along the lines, decision makers have forgotten what the law said. (laughs) So, Right. Now, I I want to talk about language for a moment. The minority candidates. Yes. Diversity hires. Diverse candidate slates. What are your thoughts about such language, if only verbalized among HR and DEI professionals and other decision makers, and not necessarily reduced to writing? Well, if I can be completely candid. (laughs) I wish you would. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I do think that while we have good intentions, I think we're misnaming the issue. When we use the word diversity, and we're using the phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
when we use the word diversity, diverse candidates, minority hires, or what have you, we're actually excluding. We're excluding and separating good talent and human talent based on some protected class and separating them from what we are implying is majority and implying is non-diverse, which essentially historically has been considered in this country white and male. Okay. It's cold. It's cold. And it's not even nuanced. Absolutely. So if you are not white and you are not male, the ideal is you are diversity higher, right? The diverse doesn't mean everyone other than white male. Diverse means differences, different people or differences in the space, which includes white male. And it includes straight white men, cisgender men, and it includes white women. It includes people with different gender identities. It includes minority in the sense of black, brown, Asian, indigenous people. It includes intersectional diversity, white and black people, Asian and and Latin people or whomever. It includes all of us. So being diverse does not segregate a particular group of people. It includes everybody. So the issue I have with using the language is that when we use it, and a lot of organizations, corporations, and even some legal professionals that I've had this discussion with, on both sides of the V, all good intended, all well intended, what they're doing is actually segregating a group of people out and dismissing them or separating them from what was traditionally patriarchal, white, male, cisgender in our community. The dangers with that is it's isolating, it's not inclusive, and it is creating, in my opinion, or fueling this fight on the woke movement. Then how do business leaders and corporate boards have the honest conversations amongst themselves to continue doing the hard work in this space if they want to achieve certain objectives or ideals with historically marginalized members of populations? Such a great question. And thank you for asking it. First and foremost, I think they need to understand the why. I mean, if you don't walk away with anything else from this discussion, please understand you need to know when you're making a decision that's based on your business, your operations, and trying to provide an environment that is inclusive of all sorts of people, you need to ask yourself, what are you trying to accomplish and why? Okay. Because the why is really, it's the next level down. The easy way to apply diverse initiatives or to bring in different groups of people into the workspace is to look at the protected classes, look at the color of skin, look at their background, look at, you know, what race they identify as, look at what religion they identify as and check the box. So we have one person from this category, one person from that category, one person from that category, but you have to be really, truly authentic in your understanding of this process. First and foremost, just because someone that looks like me and looks like you and looks like the next person, if we all look alike, doesn't mean we all think alike. It doesn't mean that our experiences are the same. It doesn't mean that we come from the same space. It doesn't mean that we have the same offerings in the same job. We're not monolithic when it comes to minorities or when it comes to any person, any group, any race, any gender, because people don't all think the same. So it's not enough to say, oh, I have a Black candidate, I have a Latin candidate, I have a female candidate, I have a Native Indigenous person candidate, and I have a person with disabilities, I have a veteran. It's not enough to say that I have a person that has a gender expression that's outside of the cisgender expression. It's not enough to check those boxes because checking those boxes doesn't necessarily solve the issue or even address what it is that you're trying to obtain. So the question is, what are you trying to obtain? Because when you bring different ideas, different perspectives, if you see the world from a different lens, then you may have something to offer the environment that provides a different take than what's already been happening. It could provide greater productivity. It could provide a different problem-solving way of addressing an issue. It could provide a different way of connecting with a client base that you had no prior experience with. If those are the tangible 
benefits that you are seeking to obtain, then you need to voice that. You need to voice those tangible benefits and identify candidates that have the attributes, the experience, the know-how, the knowledge that can help bring about those tangible benefits. And it can't just be, oh, I'm checking the box on these protected classes. So Kim, you talk about the lens, lens, more language. Harvard, UNC, that decision has struck down this kind of decision-making tool in the academic arena. But how do DEI lenses still survive in the business world? So let's talk about that Harvard decision. Because one thing that I think many of us, again, when it came out, it was this kind of gut-wrenching experience for many of us that are trying to do the work and really push for for diverse initiatives and for inclusion and equitable initiatives in, in workspaces and in universities. The Harvard decision focused on using the protected class only as a, a measure for enrollment, okay? What the actual decision says is many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. For example, hiring decisions. How do we find diverse candidates in hiring decisions that are going to add some value and also bring a different lens to the space. Well, you're again, identifying what you're trying to accomplish and two, what skills does that person bring to the table? What life lessons do they have? What experiences have they had? The decision goes on to say, you can ask them how their race may have affected these other categories. You can ask a candidate, what sorts of problem-solving experiences have you had? How have you demonstrated that you've been able to communicate and work with a vast group of individuals, people from different backgrounds? Have you had experiences in such and such communities? Have you had experiences with these sorts of clients? Tell us about it. Those are better asked questions than to look at someone's skin color and assume that they have a story, a struggle, an experience, or a connection with a group of individuals. Because quite frankly, not all skin folk or kin folk, have you heard that phrase? <laughs> not everybody fits into a bucket and not everybody will relate even if they come from a certain group. So to answer your question, I do think that we need to look more into the life lessons of an individual. We need to focus more into what qualities they're bringing to the table that are going to get you the goals that you've set. And those goals can't, again, be just checking off a protected class. It has to be something more objectively related to the work environment. You need tangible objectives, something that you can say, okay, I need an individual that is able to bring in for, you know, example, X amount of clients or sales clients or go into a particular arena and they need to have experience with this particular industry. And maybe that brings about someone that has not just the life lessons and skills in that particular industry, but they also represent one of the other protected classes and helps to create a diverse environment. Right. Now that said, I'm going to continue to push you because companies and third-party recruitment agencies continue to have conversations that dance around this concept of DEI hires, DEI candidates. With SCOTUS's decision, we now have a new restriction that will change quite literally the complexion of student bodies in many of the country's most esteemed colleges and universities. And Kim, I think you will agree with me that companies now have to be more creative and more mindful about lawfully recruiting ethnically and racially diverse candidates for their workforces. Simply showing up to campus job fairs are no longer going to accomplish that goal. And notwithstanding everything that you have just offered, which is absolutely valid. Organizations are still interested 
in making sure that they have people who are as representative as possible of the communities or the clients that they serve. So when companies partner with these third-party recruitment agencies and trying to broaden the scope of their candidate pool and the top centers are wild in effort to get more diverse candidates and people who know me know that I dislike the term for a host of reasons, most of which I think are obvious. But what are the risks here to continuing to use that language? And what are the alternatives? Well, I think the risk is very clear in light of this decision. I think the risk is liability, right? Reverse so-called, I know we've had this discussion, so-called reverse racism claims. <laughs> Non-traditional discrimination claims is the term. And I love that term, honestly. So non-traditional racism claims. So I, I think you do open the door. So first and foremost, the so communication, whether it's verbal or reduced to writing, is still considered evidence, right? And so those communications can be used against you when it comes to proving a non-traditional discrimination claim. So you have to change your thinking. You have to change your communication. You have to change your goals in that respect. You brought up organizations still wanting to do DEI, and they should absolutely continue to do DEI. But their DEI has to be more than just, like I said, those protected classes and checking the box. I've been a part of a number of different programs that provide, for example, diverse fellows for law firms and that provide diverse candidates for consideration for employment in other arenas. And the way that those organizations have enacted this, because quite frankly, I, you know, you mentioned I'm in San Diego and I'm in California. Affirmative action has been struck down in California for many years. <laughs> this particular ruling has no phase whatsoever on what exactly is happening in California on these initiatives. We've just caught up with California. You've just caught up with California. The, the nation has just caught up with California, which is actually surprising on this note because California is very employee friendly. The other part of that, however, is it does present special challenges on how you still are able to recruit and pool people of various backgrounds. But what we really have done is follow the law. And when we follow the law, what we follow is for example, in organizations that want to improve diversity or want to capitalize on just a large group of individuals that don't necessarily fit into what we consider mainstreaming. Again, I'm struggling with the word diverse as well as you. We allow individuals to define their diversity. So that's one of the things that we do. And we ask the question, what is your diversity or what do you consider to be diverse about you? And how has that diversity benefited you? What sorts of struggles or problems have you had to overcome because of your diversity? What do you love about your diversity and how do you think bringing your diverse self into this environment is going to be beneficial to everybody involved? The reason we ask those questions is because it is quite frankly, race is a social construct, right? Yes. We look at each other and we, we assign races and we assign categories to individuals just by looks. So what these groups that I've worked with have done is looked at what people identify as and then ask those questions about their character as it relates to that diverse nature. They stop talking about, you know, the protected classes and checking the box and they start talking about why do we need these people? What are they bringing to the table? How is this going to benefit us? What do they think the mutual beneficial relationship is? And oh, by the way, notwithstanding all those things, they are also qualified for the job, right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Now, again, all that said, this decision won't necessarily curb the appetite for, for instance, corporate inquiries on the diversity scorecards, oh, yes. right? From vendors yes. who seek to do business with companies. Yes. So what are the options for a company who is being asked about their quantitative and representative progress in this space 
Because whatever language they use around this, they are clearly putting immutable characteristics into focus and demanding that those companies do the same in vying for or attempting to retain their business. I mean, those conversations may still happen. So what are the alternatives to these DEI auditing practices in the wake of Harvard UNC? Well, first and foremost, I would always tell my clients, follow the law, right? (laughs) Try not to get in trouble, but it's hard, especially, for example, if you have clients that are demanding that you have a very diverse space and there's some pressure on you to hire someone that appears to be diverse to keep the business. Scorecards are hard. And in fact, I would encourage everyone, including clients, not to rely upon them because I do think that there is exposure and liability that comes across the board when you're looking at scorecards. And we've we've talked about this at length, even before this Harvard decision. It is something, this is not new information. Scorecards are quantitative in the sense they're quantifying protected class and discrimination tactics, and they are used as evidence (laughs) against companies. You can provide the statistics in regards to where you're at in the diversity of your workforce, but you can't make decisions based on those protected classes. So I don't know if I answered your question. I think I've tried to dodge it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I understand. And it's wonderful that we continually say, observe the law, make sure that your policies are lawful, make sure that they don't violate Title VII, et cetera, et cetera. But Kim, our conversation is admittedly going to be a very little value to businesses out there with a damn the torpedoes approach in this space. And they're out there. So that is for those decision makers who may have a more robust appetite for risk in this space and who will continue to double down on their commitments to aggressive DEI strategies. They're out there. We know they are. But what considerations for approaching DEI initiatives might we share for those businesses still committed, but a bit chilled about this evolving era? And for those businesses who may have that robust appetite, but they they may be listening and they're willing to hear about what else exists. Well, let me first and foremost say the way that we approach DEI, and that this is across the board, it's not just in the hiring and the recruiting process, but even how we employ it in the workspace. The way that we have recently approached it, I believe, is... um little challenging for the entire process because it is not necessarily inclusive. So that's the first thing I want to say. Now, I know we're on a podcast and, you know, individuals can look up my bio if they like, and they can take a look at me and try to make a decision on what they think my diversity is. But I can tell you, I am a diverse woman. I identify as both African-American and Afro-Latina. Okay. And those are two very different groups, (laughs) different cultures. (laughs) And being a diverse woman, I can tell you that I have often been one of a few in a lot of the corporations and in the legal community in various places that I have worked. I can tell you that I do these DEI trainings consistently, and I have sat in on various DEI trainings. And I can tell you that one of the biggest issues that I have in the trainings that we are now experiencing is this sense of other. It is diverse as the other and then white male. And I can also tell you that when I sit in on quite a few trainings, what I experience is almost the antithesis of inclusion because it's often training that directly focuses on microaggressions, racism, and stereotypes that we have all experienced or many of us have experienced in different ways across the board historically in institutions of learning and in work. And it's focused on individuals that typically are the ones that are committing 
we're processing these microaggressions and these stereotypes. And it's basically saying, don't do that. You're, you're the bad actor here. Okay. That does nothing for the work environment to be inclusive. That is creating dissension in the work environment. And it is not at all a helping the others, the so-called diverse employees to feel included in the work environment because it does create this kind of segmented us against them type of attitude. The other thing that I have seen and have experienced and have counseled companies on is the sense of when you're on the receiving end of microaggressions and stereotypes in the workspace as a person that fits into one of the protected classes, how do you address that? Most diverse equity and inclusive trainings do not even touch on that. They're not speaking to people who are actually in the space that are feeling as if they are part of the minority group or outside the scope. So for companies that feel like, oh my goodness, this is such a hot area. We don't know what we're going to do in the wake of a Harvard decision. Do we even continue these initiatives? Are we going to get in trouble when we start talking about these sorts of things? Are we going to get in trouble when we start looking at leadership? Are people going to think that we hired the Kim Carters and put her in a management position because she checks off multiple boxes and has an intersectional diversity and that she may or may not be qualified to do the job and, you know, fearful of what might look like diverse initiatives in the workspace, the first thing they have to do is create an experience and a culture of inclusion. And that means including everybody. That means including everybody. And if that's a difficult thing for an employer to do, then I challenge them. I challenge them to think about what we're talking about today. Because having discussions about diverse candidates, diverse hires, minority representation of the community that we represent and all those sorts of things really diminishes the value of the talent that you have. Because you may have a very talented person who also isn't, you know, involved in those or checks off those boxes. But the first and foremost, your decision making comes from their talent. Okay, getting them through the door, bringing them into the workspace, and then providing a space where they feel included. And that also means providing a space where their voice is heard, but also everyone else's voice is heard and everyone's voices are being considered. And it's not just pointing fingers at you group of people have been oppressing and and have been, you know, you've been benefited all these years by 400 years of the institutions that have been placed into this country that have marginalize this other individual that happens to be your colleague. No, we're all colleagues and our voices need to be heard in the space. So inclusion, I think more than anything is the most important thing that companies need to do in order to protect diverse initiatives. Kim, your thoughts about inclusion echo the sentiment expressed in an extremely thoughtful Harvard Business Review article authored by Tina Opie and Ella F. Washington, entitled Why Companies Can and Should Recommit to DEI in the Wake of the SCOTUS Decision. You've read it, I take it. I, I, I'm sure I have. I love the Harvard Review. <laughs> right. And I just put that out there for our listeners who may want to continue reading about and thinking about your comments that emphasize inclusion as opposed to diversity. We talk a lot about COVID boosters in our current era. How can businesses immunize or boost a vulnerable or compromised DEI initiative right now? In other words, what else should companies be doing to minimize the possibilities that their DEI initiatives are simply a ruse for de facto exclusion or, or discrimination of members from majority groups, like you discuss. Cindy Ann, I'm going to say this, and I mean this with all sincerity. I believe, and as an employment attorney, I've come to this understanding, and it's it served me well in, in my personal life as well. All great relationships come with strong communication. All great relationships, including employment. In fact, especially employment relationships. So to boost a DEI initiative, to immunize a DEI initiative, I think the first thing that needs to happen is voices need to be heard. 
And I cannot stress that enough. I have seen so many DEI initiatives, people well-intentioned, good meaning, who've come before the board. I've sat in board meetings, who have spoken with leadership, who have just outright felt the need to speak on behalf of people who have been marginalized. And it's surprising to me how many of those voices are not necessarily the persons that have traditionally been marginalized. And what I mean by that is a lot of times they're not asking people in the space how they can be better included. A lot of times they're not asking people in the space what more or how can your voice be heard here? Is it being heard? Are you being included in the decision-making? Are you being included in the process? And they're not addressing those things in their trainings. They're not addressing what is actually happening in the culture in that company, in their training. They're not addressing it in their decision-making. They're not providing tools for individuals and resources for individuals to be heard. Instead, there is a lot of sense and a lot of talk about how do we get more women involved or how do we get more minorities involved or where's the pipeline at or where do we go to get these particular individuals? And once they're here, what do we do with them? These are hard conversations because people don't want to admit that we come into spaces with bias. People don't want to admit that this country and the communications that we have and the media and the entertainment and the the propaganda that has been ongoing for over 400 years has really shaped and molded how we see each other and we operate and make decisions based on that. What can companies do? Have honest communications with each other and say, yeah, okay, this is where things have started. But we are going to be committed to following the law. We don't make hiring decisions. We don't make promotion decisions. We don't make adverse employment decisions based on some stereotypical characteristic. We make those decisions based on the objective findings that we can find in the work environment. Are you doing your job? Are you productive? Do you show up for work? You know, Is the company fiscally sound? Do we need to make decisions? How do we make those decisions? Are they objectified? And take the subjective out of it. But we have to acknowledge the subjective is there. Countries like South Africa, having an apartheid system that ended years after our system of Jim Crow and slavery and the like in this country has a much healthier community when it comes to race relations and discussions because they acknowledged that something happened and they apologized for it. And this country still refuses to even acknowledge that there are issues within our relations with one another. And because of that, companies are left doing the work. The one thing I do know, that we all know about America and how America operates is that our civil rights are truly mandated in institutions of learning and in employment. So unfortunately, we are stuck now with our employment environments being left doing the work. I've had clients ask, why do I have to deal with this? This has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with us. Why are we still stuck with having to deal with the badges of slavery? And my response is because you are in America, doing business in America, and your workforce is diverse. And if you don't understand how the social construct of what has happened outside the doors of your business are bleeding into the doors when your workforce comes into that environment and you're not sensitive to it and do not address issues when they come up, you're inviting a greater sense of animosity and bitterness in the workspace that is going to affect every single person, your morale and your culture. Because unfortunately, we cannot escape what happens outside those doors. But what you can do is set the tone for the culture inside. Fair enough. Well stated. I feel like we could talk a lot about this. (laughs) And we could probably speak about it in a multi-part 
series just dedicated to the challenges outside of the workplace that make the implementation of the successful DEI programs so difficult. But I want to focus a little bit on solutions for the time that we have remaining. And look, organizations are experiencing a mixture of frustration, confusion, and definitely fatigue in this space, right, Kim? Absolutely. And for those who are not about to let this most recent wave of anti-DEI sentiment derail their respective journeys, many simply don't want to hear about all the things they can't do. They want solutions counseling. And we, as attorneys, as you know, are a much maligned group for constantly telling clients what they can't do. So what during these uncertain and evolving times can companies do in this space, Kim? What can they continue to do? What should they start doing or start doing better? And what should they begin to do differently? And beyond mere platitudes for those out there taking notes about what needs to happen for DEI to not only survive, but to thrive in our current era. What can they continue to do? I'll start with that. They can continue their DEI efforts. I would say do not abandon it. And I would say do not abandon it, especially in this time, because we are in a a, a space where especially Gen Z, will not stand for people being marginalized and treated poorly or ignored. And that means their differences. We had a, uh, a historical kind of unspoken rule that everyone kind of homogenized and fit into what, for example, what's considered professional. Right. And the rules and the standards were set by a group of individuals that don't necessarily look like me. And it is largely denied that people are different. You know, in fact, some people think, oh, I don't see this or I don't see color. I don't see your differences. I think we're more alike than we're different. Well, we're we are a lot alike. I mean, we're all human beings. Right. But there are differences and we need to acknowledge that. So what I would say that we continue to do is we continue to complete diverse initiatives because I'm getting old, (laughs) but the group behind me, (laughs) they're not having it. Right. And they will not be denied. (laughs) And Kim, for the benefit of our listeners, Gen Z is our most diverse generation ever with 43 million strong in the country. And they really do care about diversity. So I just wanted to really validate your comment on that, uh, some 80% of them will tell you that they would reconsider working with a company that is not all in on DEI, 80%. So if they begin to back down from DEI, the ramifications for Gen Z, retention and engagement can be quite dramatic. Listen, it is not the same day and age where you and I are like, we're just happy to get a job and we're going to work that job until we get another one. I can tell you, I know you can say the same. This workforce now, they will quit on a dime. Let Absolutely. Them, let them feel like they are being marginalized or their coworker in this cubicle next to them is being marginalized in some way. They will stage a coup. <laughs> yeah, and that transcends race and ethnicity and national origin. Absolutely. So you don't have to belong to one of those categories for Gen Z to react in both the business and consumer spaces about perceived injustices. Business and consumer spaces. So if there was ever a question on why DEI, Please understand that your customers, your consumers, your clients, and your workforce, your talent, 
is watching you, your company, your organization to see what a good citizen you are. Yeah. So don't stop doing it. Continue to do it. What do we need to be better at? Inclusion. 100 million percent. We have to get better at inclusion. It is not enough to just point out this is the problem. Okay, because the problem is what it is. And the reality is many people are seeing the world from the lens that they've been handed. So a lot of people, unless they have an exposure, unless they have an experience, or unless they have a loved one that has an exposure and experience, they don't see the problem off the bat. And like anyone, I mean, I have children. If I tell my kids you're doing something wrong, they initially buck up and go, wait a minute, what? What, what am I doing? They want to fight the point because they don't have a necessary understanding of where they're coming from. And I know some people are going to push back on me on this one. Oh, no, no, no. These people know what they're doing and they just, they, you know, they're entitled and they're getting the benefits and they don't want to give up the power. And some of that might be true. Some of that might be 100% true, but I promise you at the same time, there are people who have lived their entire life and experiences in their bubble. And they haven't been challenged to see the world differently from someone else's point of view. So inclusion is extremely important with your diversity initiatives to make sure that everyone feels like they're being heard and respected in the space. And you're not villainizing anyone because that's not going to be helpful in your space. You know, I always say that diversity is a fact, but inclusion is an act, which is why diversity is easy and inclusion is hard. So we are aligned there, Kim. So thanks for emphasizing inclusion. And and that third section of that multi-part question that I posed about what should be done differently. Yes. What are your thoughts? I think that we should actually quantify the results and the goals for a DEI initiative in a business sense. Meaning? So I've talked about it a little bit generally with respect to how we approach it and why we're doing it, but breaking it down even to a more holistic, just direct approach, going back to the diverse initiatives that I've worked on identifying candidates that we think would be excellent and well-placed to work in various organizations. We start with the basics, right? What sort of writing skills you have, research, what sort of problem-solving skills do you have? What experience do you have? Those sorts of things. And then we drilled down and said, okay, now tell us about your experiences. What diversity do you think you have, right? How do you identify your diversity? How has it shaped you? And what qualities and characteristics do you think that you've evolved as a result of these experiences? What we're looking for are problem-solving skills. We're looking for resilience. We're looking for people that can handle criticism. We're looking for people that can be molded and trained. We're looking for people who have an experience that allows them to be empathetic. Great communication skills. These are all skills that translate to the work that we are assigning them. So it wasn't just the fact that they were diverse. We were asking them about their diversity. We were asking them about their experiences in life. And how do those things translate in ways that may not otherwise be identified? You can't see that on a, a scorecard. You can't see it on a grade sheet. You can't see it on a transcript. We're talking real life experiences and maybe they didn't have a professional upbringing. Maybe they didn't come from a legacy of professionals that would allow them to take the summer job in their dad's business partners, law firm, clerking and having experience around judges and the like. But maybe they did some sort of work. Maybe they worked like I did at a theme park and became a union member and had to deal with shop stewards and striking and organizing and all those sorts of things, which catapulted me into the life of, you know, employment law. Maybe, maybe they had those sorts of experiences. And my God, I wouldn't have known that had I not asked them. 
had I not gotten into the bottom of what it is that their life experiences have taught them. So changing the metrics, and you're going to hear a lot, and we already hear a lot of discussion from companies and organizations and board members and even legal colleagues about how do we gauge the metrics with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because if I get this in a candidate and I get it through an unconventional way, through drilling down into various experiences that they may have, then then I'm getting a solid candidate that may bring about a different metrics. It takes time. The bottom line, it takes time for this to be successful. So then how will strategies like the ones that you've just outlined, help business leaders who want the changes to occur right away? There are no true quick fixes. You have to be realistic about what it is you're trying to accomplish here. That's the, that's the first thing. Quick fixes, Kim. We've been working at this for over a quarter century. But have we really, though? I mean, let's let's be honest about that. Have we really been working at this for over a quarter century? Because I can tell you, living in this space and being the person that I am, I've had communications with many colleagues, even clients, prior to June 2020, who were very dismissive. And now all of a sudden, June 2020 happens and it's, oh my goodness, we didn't know. Well, you knew or you heard about it, but it wasn't in your face. So you weren't understanding the implications. And now we want this quick fix, knee-jerk reaction But the reality is the number could have been a lot greater had we truly been working at this 25 years ago. So now we're working on it and we need you to be patient with that. The other thing, when you have candidates who have the skill set, who are in your space, who are working in those spaces, treat them the way you would treat everyone else. Create an environment for them to succeed. Do not have unrealistic expectations. Do not make them the great hope. Do not put unrealistic superhero expectations on them. Let them be human. That's the hard work of inclusion, the meaningful work of inclusion that must accompany diversity that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Kim Carr, my learned colleague, from Littler's San Diego office, may I just tell you how much I appreciate your willingness to take time out of your busy practice to chat with me for a while today? I am so honored that you asked me to come speak with you. I hope we get to talk some more. I am, I enjoyed this. Thank you. We absolutely will. Thank you, my friend. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast just half as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to me at cathomas at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. I'm Cindy Ann Thomas, and thank you for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.